It says in Proverbs 27.5 that open rebuke is better than secret love. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Uh, King Solomon goes on to say in the next verse that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Well, in our passage this morning, uh, the Lord Jesus continues to be our faithful friend. He continues to give us the loving wounds of open rebuke. Uh, This whole middle section of Mark's gospel could be read as Christ rebuking us into the kingdom. Because God loves us and wants us to freely embrace him, Jesus continues to cut away at the chains that we have bound ourselves with. Jesus continues to pull down the idols that we have erected in place of he who is the one true and living God. So far, Jesus has rebuked us for our vanity and self-conceit, our desire to be great in the eyes of the world. He has rebuked us for our infidelity in marriage and our easy divorce laws. And last week, he rebuked us for getting in the way of children coming to him. Well, this morning, the rebukes continue, and he rebukes us now for our love of money and worldly possessions. We remember the context of this uh, uh, section is Jesus teaching us the cost of following him. And he has just told us that if we want to enter the kingdom of God, we must become as little children, even as infants, in how we receive it. And so immediately following this call to become as little children, behold, a young man comes running to him, asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. So looking at our text now, our text divides neatly into three sections, and in each section, Jesus answers a different question. So in verses 17 to 22, Jesus answers the young man's question, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? In verses 23 to 27, he answers the question, how can the rich be saved? And then in verses 28 to 31, he answers the question, what reward will those who forsake all and follow Jesus receive? So those are the three questions we're going to try to answer in this sermon. So starting in verse 17, it says, and when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him. Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Uh, This same scene is recorded also in Matthew and in Luke. And uh, if we were to combine all three accounts, we would discover that this man is rich, he is young, and he is a ruler. Hence why we call this passage the rich young ruler. All three accounts, of course, describe him as rich, although Mark actually withholds that detail from us until verse 22 for, uh, I think, dramatic purposes. In Matthew 19, we are told that he was young, and uh, just for reference, young in this context, in uh, the biblical context here, is someone who's roughly 24 uh, to 40 years old. So he's not a teenager, but he's not yet uh, an elder. Uh, Luke 18.18 calls him a certain ruler or prince. So who is this young man? He is someone of uh, some significance, of a good reputation, of wealth. He's well-to-do. Moreover, as we will see, he is a morally upright and law-abiding ruler. He's kept the second table of the law. He's the kind of person you probably wouldn't mind having as your next-door neighbor. And so this rich young ruler comes running to Jesus, kneels down. He shows him respect and says, 
Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Uh, This is the most important question a person could ask, and we should commend this man at least for uh, asking it of Jesus. He's come, of course, to the right person. Well, how does Jesus respond? Verse 18, And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. So this is an interesting question that Jesus responds with. Uh, He could have just you think if someone asks you that, what is your like automatic response going to be? Probably like, I don't know, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus or something. But that's not how Jesus starts. He, as he often does, he starts with a question. And you know that anytime Jesus asks a question, uh, he's not asking because he doesn't know the answer. He's asking because uh, you don't know the answer. When Jesus asks a question, when God asks a question, it's because he wants to reveal something to you or to us who are reading it. So that's what's happening here. And uh, the reason is because uh, Jesus wants this man to think about why he's just called Jesus good and what he really means by that. Because embedded in the answer to Jesus' question is actually the answer to the rich young ruler's question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So uh, let's explore what is embedded here. So why, why does this man called Jesus good. Well, in order to call anyone or anything good, you need some standard by which to judge that. And where does that standard come from? In the mind of this rich young ruler, Jesus is a, quote, good teacher, uh, just like many other, quote, good human teachers. He's respectful. He even kneels. But he attributes to Jesus as a mere man, the essential goodness that belongs exclusively to God. In other words, he calls Jesus good, kind of like the man considers himself good. For as we will see shortly, he has kept the commandments from his youth. And this is the essence of the rich young ruler's problem. He doesn't actually know what goodness is or where it comes from. And therefore, he doesn't know what is good for him. Am I going to be attacked up here by... I can see him sneaking, sneaking up on me. Security. <laughs> of all the weeks, Kirby's gone. All right. Joe, you'll protect me. Right. Okay. All right, where, where were we? Uh, in other words, uh, this, this man calls Jesus good, kind of like the man considers himself good, for he has kept the commandments from uh, his youth. He calls Jesus good as if man has some goodness apart from the Lord. Now, there's some deep irony in here, and Mark is just full of irony. It's probably one of the most ironic uh, books in the Bible. So, see if you can get the irony here. The irony is that Jesus is God, okay? This is often the ironic twist, is like, they don't know. And think about what this man is doing. He's actually saying something that is really true, and truer than he even knows or intends, this is part of the riddle of this, this text, and you'll, you'll see commentators, they miss this all, all the time. So the problem is not with calling Jesus a good teacher. The problem is with what the man means by that attribution. He speaks them to Jesus from a place of false understanding, and therefore Jesus lovingly corrects him. And so Jesus says, uh, there is none good but one, that is God. That is to say, God is what we call 
absolutely good. He is essentially good. He is, we could say, super eminently good by nature. God has nothing outside of him by which you can judge that he is good. Right? He is very goodness itself. God is the supreme good and nothing else can be called good unless it participates and imitates him. He who is very goodness itself. Put another way, if God's goodness is the sun burning at full strength, man's goodness is as a flickering candle. And even that analogy puts man and God infinitely too close together. For God is the one who gives the sun to be. As it says, and as we heard in 1 Timothy 6, He alone dwells in light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. Right? That is how good God is. His light is so bright that the sun is as darkness next to him. So this is what Jesus means when he's saying there is none good but one that is God. God is essential goodness. Continuing in verse 19, Jesus further exposes the man's false notion of goodness. He wants the man to see in himself that he does not at present regard God as this supreme and essential good. And so he says, verses 19 and 20, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered the young man and said back to him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. So what's happening here? Jesus summarizes what we call the second table of the law, commandments uh, 5 through 10. And those are the things that tell you how to love your neighbor. And the man says, yes, I've observed all of these from my youth. Now, what is the glaring omission? Well, it's commandments one through four, right? The first table of the law that teach you, tell you, instruct you how to love God as your supreme good, right? The first commandment is that you have no other gods before him. The second commandment is that you worship no images of him. The third is that we hallow and revere his name. And the fourth, that we remember and worship him on his Sabbath day. So despite this man keeping the externals of the second table of the law, and Jesus doesn't say that he hasn't done these things, right? He's not killed anyone. He's not committed adultery. He's not even apparently gained his wealth by fraud, etc. He's done all of these good things, and yet Jesus says he actually lacks something. He still lacks one thing. He lacks the goodness necessary to inherit eternal life because he lacks God as his supreme good. Continuing, verses 21 to 22. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him, and said unto him, One thing thou lackest. Go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And the man was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. So note the irony, right? The man who has everything, youth, riches, power, status, everything that, you know, normal people aspire towards, he's got it all, but he lacks the one thing he most needs, namely God. And Jesus loves this man. He loves him enough to tell him how God can actually be his, how he can inherit eternal life. What must this man do to inherit God's kingdom? Well, he must do what every other human being must do. He must have God for his highest good and supreme treasure. 
And in this instance, because earthly riches are his actual God, and because great, posi- great possessions are the idol he has fashioned in place of God, Jesus says all those things must go. And this is not because riches are somehow inherently sinful. They're not. But rather because those are the golden shackles that are keeping this man from being actually rich. By not following Jesus, the man has chosen to lock himself in a golden prison rather than receiving by faith as a little child a kingdom wherein gold is what they use to pave the streets. This is the great danger and tragedy of being rich in this world. You are tempted to settle for very good things but are just lesser than the really good thing, the best thing, God. We are tempted to settle for something less than he who is the source of all goodness, than the one who is the ceaseless fount of all blessing. It is really only the Christian who has God as his highest good that can actually handle and use the good things that God gives us without letting them handle him. Wealth is a wonderful servant, a terrible master, and the reason the Bible warns us of the deceitfulness of riches is because it is very easy to trick yourself. It's very easy to think that you are ruling your possessions, you know, being a good steward, when in reality your possessions are ruling and stewarding you. Um, and that's a, that's a whole other sermon. But to summarize, what must this man do to inherit eternal life? He must repent and believe just like everyone else. And Jesus says for him, repentance means the forsaking of all his possessions so that God may be enthroned as the highest good in his heart. What we have seen throughout this gospel is Jesus uh, really accommodating and personally applying that opening line in the gospel, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, everyone has something a little bit different to repent of, and this is what it is. Jesus is going to accommodate that to each individual, and this is what it is for this man. Whatever idols that you have erected in your heart in place of God, Jesus has come to knock down. For some, like this man, it's money, it's worldly possessions, and the security they promise. For others, it might be sensual pleasure, gratifying your flesh. For others, it is their own self-righteousness, their own self-conception, and on and on we could go. But whatever you regard as good, as a good higher than God, that you must forsake if you would inherit eternal life. That's, That's the point here. Anything that you consider as better than God, actually, in how you allocate your time, your resources, etc., Jesus says that has to go if you are going to inherit the kingdom. And therefore, in principle, we must all be able to say with the Apostle Paul that I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Philippians 3.8. I count all things as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. In other words, uh, were Jesus to say to you what he said to the rich young ruler, okay, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, follow me, there ought not be hesitancy in us or sadness to do so. And our gut response to that command uh, reveals to us what is actually in our heart. Because God loves us, 
He sometimes causes or permits that we suffer certain losses, right? We experience this when we get sick, when we have our health taken from us, or, uh, you know, we're stolen from, or some kind of possessions are lost, or, you know, we suffer the loss and death of our loved ones. God sends these trials into our life. He causes and permits them in order to remind us that this world is not where our hope and treasure lies. Like Abraham, God wants us to fix our gaze upon a better city whose builder and maker is him. This is what Christians desire. They desire a better country, a heavenly one, where we can actually enjoy God and his people, enjoy one another and all of his good creation without the taint of sin without any suffering, and without worrying about it being lost. Right? There's no need for insurance in heaven. Okay? That's a wonderful thing. When that becomes your hope, when that becomes the ambition of your heart, when that becomes uh, your supreme joy, love, and desire, Jesus says that already eternal life has begun in you. Returning to our text, the disciples watching this scene unfold are astonished. Verses 23 to 27. So Jesus looks round about and he saith unto unto his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and saith unto them, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? And then we have this famous little image. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Well, who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So how then can a rich man be saved? Uh, or we might say, how then can uh, Americans, the wealthiest nation in like, the history of the world, how can Americans be saved? Can, can America be saved? Can you and I be saved? Well, Jesus' answer is that with men, it's simply not possible. It cannot be done. Or as Jesus says in John six forty four, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Because uh, there is no earthly way for man to move himself to love God more than his stuff. Man is so blind, we are so blind in our sin, man is so blind in his sin that what he thinks is good for him is only that which his various appetites find appealing. After the fall, man lacks the ability to love God as his highest good. And therefore, Jesus says with men, it is impossible but not with God, for with God all things are possible. So what this means is that unless God supernaturally intervenes, no man will ever be saved. Full stop. Unless God intervenes, unless he comes to you from without, no man will ever be saved. And it is this supernatural intervention from outside of us that the Bible calls grace. What is grace? Grace is God's action in man that leads to salvation. It's the most basic definition of grace there is. Grace is God's action in man that leads to salvation. Grace is one in essence, just as God's actions are one, but it is diverse according to the many effects that it brings about in us. Thus, Scripture speaks of grace that causes us to be born again, not of our own will, but of God's will. There's grace that justifies us and makes us righteous. 
There is grace that sanctifies us and unites us to God. There is grace that glorifies us and elevates our nature. There is grace that operates in us apart from our will, like regeneration, like being born again. And, there, and then there is grace that we co- cooperate with as we work out by charity what God works in. But the essence of all those different kinds of grace that the Bible talks about uh, in Jesus' words is that it is not with man or from man, but rather it is from or with God. And with God, all things are possible, even the salvation of the rich. That is how a rich man can be saved, only by the grace of God. Finally, the disciples then wonder, well, uh, you know, God's grace has worked in us to forsake all and follow you, Jesus. Uh, What then is going to be our reward? Verses 28 to 31. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. So what is Jesus' answer to Peter? Well, he says there are basically two kinds of rewards for those who are moved by God's grace to follow him. There are spiritual rewards that you receive in this life and spiritual rewards that you receive in the next. In this life, Jesus says that if we have left house or land or family for his sake and the gospels, we shall receive now in this time a hundredfold return. So for example, if a man has to leave his house to follow Jesus, uh, he will find that the homes of the saints are opened to him. There will be a lot more than a hundred houses that will be hospitable to him because for a righteous cause he has been made homeless. Uh, Some of us experience this uh, when we travel to foreign places. Uh, Missionaries experience this. When we stay with Christians that we've never met before. Have you ever experienced that feeling of deep spiritual kinship with someone you just met? You just met them, but they love the Lord Jesus. They profess the same faith as you. And so there's just this instant, deep spiritual bond you have, and it moves them to you know, warmly open their home to you, feed you, give you food, shelter, etc. Despite whatever cultural differences there are, there is this spiritual bond of love that unites all Christians across the globe. This is profound. Likewise, if a man has been disowned by his natural family for following Jesus, they exclude him from their society. Jesus says that whatever he has lost, the Lord will make it up to him. There are friends who stick closer than a brother, and those friends are brothers and sisters and mothers in the church. Now, uh, if you set these two lists next to each other and kind of compare them, uh, you'll notice that... um, There are two omissions and one addition in terms of what you give up and what you uh, get back. Uh, The two omissions in this list are father and wife, and the one addition is persecutions. So father and wife is omitted, uh, persecutions are added. Uh, The most likely reason for not promising a hundredfold fathers is because in Christ we have one father in heaven. As for not promising a hundredfold wives, well, you can imagine why that would be uh, perverse. We have one father in heaven, we have one wife, 
But in the church, we can have a hundredfold mothers and brothers and sisters and children and lands with one important addition, persecutions. In case we had too idealistic or unrealistic expectations for what the church is or what it ought to be, Jesus tells us up front that if you follow him, you can expect to be persecuted. And perhaps the reason he sets persecutions right next to lands is because those who bring the gospel to new lands are frequently those who suffer the most persecution. The Apostle Paul affirms this same reality when he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So yes, there are great rewards in this life for following Jesus. But the rewards are different than you might expect. If persecution does not sound like a reward, well, remember what the apostles do in Acts 5.41 right after they are beaten. It says, They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That is what it's like to receive adversity, persecution, threats, pressure from the unbelieving world, uh, it should make us rejoice because all they're doing is increasing our treasure with the Lord. What makes the Christian faith so special is that our God knows the way out of the grave. When they kill us, they further our cause. When they persecute us, they crown us with glory. What evil men intend for evil, God works and intends for good. And when that kind of God is on your side, uh, you can't lose. You are free, you can feel free to forsake all, count it all as loss, even your own life. And in so doing, you discover the surpassing riches of knowing God in Christ. Anyone who has forsaken all and followed Jesus will attest to you that it has been more than worth it. I'll close with this. Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, the Lord Jesus, he does, he did the impossible. And like a camel, that beast of burden, Jesus carried the weight of the world's sins to the cross and paid for them. He was pierced for our transgressions, and having passed through the eye of death, he came out victorious on the other side. So what is your highest good? Is it God? Or is it something lesser? Whatever it is, Jesus requires you to count it, to reckon it as loss and follow him. And if you do, he will carry you. He will carry you safely through that same eye of death, which all of us must pass through. And he will give you eternal life in the age to come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.